Welcome to the Pop Cult Podcast. Here are your hosts Ariana and Seth. This is the Pop Cult Podcast. I'm Seth. Ariana. And we are here to talk about, of course, two new movies that have come out, or new to us. I think one of them came out maybe a few months ago. One of them did just come out on video on demand, and I'm excited to talk about it. Uh, that one is Triangle of Sadness by Ruben Ostland, and we'll get to that later. But first up, we're going to talk about a feature horror debut, a film titled Soft and Quiet, which presents a different type of horror than we've talked about on the podcast before, uh, a very real-world type of horror. Yeah. Uh, this is the feature debut of director Beth de Arujo, uh, who I believe is based out of the Pacific Northwest. And the film is set in a rural area, sort of outside of Portland. And uh, I think they also filmed in places around Eugene. And she has said that her inspiration came when she saw the video of Amy Cooper. And I don't know if you remember, Amy Cooper was the Central Park woman. Oh, yeah. There was a gentleman who, he was a black gentleman that was a bird watcher. And he was bird watching in the park, as people do, and sitting on a bench. And she came through with a dog that I think she did not have great control of. And he told her, please keep your dog away from me. I'm not sure he might possibly be on the autism spectrum. And it was just kind of like scary to him, the dog. Mm -hmm. And she just reacted by becoming a very vile, hateful, racist white lady. And saying things to him like she was going to call the cops and tell them that he assaulted her. And that she was basically going to ruin him. You know, thankfully, she was the one whose career was ruined as a yeah, result of that. Recorded yeah, because he recorded her, but she was still using her, her white female yeah, yeah. Uh, privilege. So she, uh, uh, De Arohu said that she saw that video and that she immediately was kind of inspired and started writing. And this movie is the product of that. Uh, Soft and Quiet is a difficult movie, I would think, to watch. It is about an elementary school teacher who organizes a mixer of like-minded women. Uh, After their meeting, they have an encounter with someone from her past, and that spirals into a very chaotic, violent chain of events. Uh, So, Ariana, uh, what did you think of Soft and Quiet? I was uncomfortable the whole time, and I think you remarked on that a lot. Oh, yeah, I could feel your discomfort watching this movie, but it was like a... That was the point of the movie. I mean, it was the point of the movie, but I think it's also because I've encountered women like this that made me extremely uncomfortable. Um, so if you were unaware of this film or have not watched the trailer, it is very obvious that later on you figure out that this is a white supremacy group for the ladies. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's filmed, it's shot in, or I guess the events play out in real time. And we're meant to see it as like one single take, but there were a few points where I could kind of tell they were hiding a cut. But for the most part, it's very subtle. It's very hard to see where the cuts are. And it is just, it's almost like a a ride. Once it starts, you're on it and you're not getting off until the end. And it gets fucking crazy in this movie. Yeah. And so... um... It was one of those films that it's not surprising to me to witness this, especially considering like my past employment when it came to dealing with Holocaust survivors when somebody decided to track 
a map of hate across Tennessee and where they indicated the different white slash hate groups that were around Mm -hmm. uh, the town and also the weird conversations that I've ended up having with white women who suddenly look at me and go like, oh, you're married to a nice white man. Let me show you some solidarity by saying shit you would never say in front of, uh, like, to someone else only because they just assumed I was one of them or even having weird remarks said to me that are supposed to be very subtle. Um, So it comes off like at first you're thinking to yourself, is this a book group? Is this like just a support system for women? Even before the group meets, there's something sinister being introduced because the Emily character, uh, we meet her, the very opening scene of the movie is she's taking a pregnancy test. And she's in a bathroom, and we find out that this is a bath, an employee bathroom at the elementary school she teaches. Yes. And it's, it's after school, and she seems to be upset about the results of the pregnancy test. And we, I think we learn that like it's negative. She is yeah. not pregnant, and she's trying to get pregnant. Uh, she, then she proceeds to walk around the building on her way to go walk to the local church where this group is going to meet in the basement and encounters a former student of hers. I think he was like a student of hers the previous year, and now he's in the the next grade. And there's just these negative vibes that Emily is giving off towards um, one of the cleaners, who is a Latina woman, I think. Mm -hmm. And she tells the little boy she's talking to to go in there and tell the woman that she can't finish mopping the floors until he's been picked up. And there's been no reason for that to happen. Like, it, it, the boy had not... The boy was already sitting outside. Yeah, he was already sitting outside. And then when the boy's mother does show up, Emily lies and says, oh, he almost fell and hurt himself. And, and I, with kids like him, I want to make sure that he asserts himself. Yeah, that he's, he's so, you know, so quiet and soft-spoken that I want to make sure that, you know, he tells people, you know, what his needs are. When really... As we find out later, it was racially motivated because yeah. this cleaning woman is not white. That's why Emily targeted her, and she did it in a very insidious way by making this child go do it for her. Well, especially like it's in a remark of saying, well, white m- women are going to basically use white men or white male children to assert their dominance o- over people of color. And let's start it off early because it's innocent enough. He's just making, she's just making sure that he has the confidence to take care of himself and that he isn't bullied by someone. He could have fallen and his precious knees could have gotten bruised when it's really just her being an awful person. And so that, that scene is our introduction. And one of the things I liked about the movie is characters do not explicitly give their motivations, or especially the Emily character, is it's good that we see her outside of the group where she's in an environment where she doesn't feel comfortable enough to just be completely openly racist, and so she has to be stealthy about it, which mm-hmm. in real life, that's what most of us are going to encounter. People who are trying to slowly weave their hatreds into their communities in yeah. a way that seems innocuous, that we're just standing up for ourselves. Um, after that, we follow Emily. Uh, she's trying to place a phone call that doesn't f- connect, but we realize she's calling a state penitentiary. No, they're calling her. And oh, yes, yeah, was yeah. She's being called from the state penitentiary, and she does not answer the call. So we're thinking, husband, something. What's going on? Uh, she gets to the church uh, before she goes in. 
I forget. What she, is there like a little shrine or something she stops at? There no, was like a little like shed or something there's outside. There's a little shed that she's like um, checking and then she start, she confronts one of the people that's going to join her in the group. Yeah, so it's a stranger who, which is Leslie. And Leslie just kind of walks into the scene and immediately Emily becomes very like, well, who are you? What are you doing here? When, I mean, she's just outside the church. Anybody could be there. And Leslie just says, oh, I'm here for this group. And they realize that they're both going to the same meeting. And I also want that Emily and Leslie are the central figures in this movie. Yeah. The movie is about these two women and the power dynamics between them. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, they go into the meeting. And there it's the moment you realize what's going on is uh, each of the woman, women has brought like a baked good to share. Mm-hmm. And there is this cherry pie that gets uncovered, and it has a swastika carved into the crust yes. the, on the top. Uh, and Marjorie, who is, uh, of all the women, the meekest, but still does horrible, unspeakable things, yeah. reacts with surprise. And I, I believe the woman that brought the pie, I don't think it's Emily. Did Emily bring the pie? Emily brought, it was the, Emily pie. brought the pie. She responds with, oh, nobody can take a joke anymore. Yeah. And then as we find out from their meeting, what was the joke? That was the thing, as I wondered, is, so what was the joke of putting the swastika in the pie when, like, one of the women talks about how her father was a KKK member, and she does most of her uh, organizing and communication on, you know, Stormfront, a popular Nazi website. And so I wondered, like, what was the swastika? Well, I think it's... How was that a joke? How was that a joke? An initiation to see what's the reaction of everyone around. So that is a moment that you could walk out never speak to these women again or you're going to sit in and just you know view what you're going to do and maybe be adopted into them and what's interesting is um during the meeting they're whole you know each person holds the marker to write down ideas what they're going to do for the group and essentially what they're doing is what people would be considered socialism slash like uh well it's just organizing organizing it's political organizing it's political organizing but But for fascism but it is in order to get the people on their side because they're about a newsletter they're talking about um they're talking about doing like food community outreach outreach so basically and they're admitting they have to be gentle during this. Well, I mean, yeah, Emily, the title of the film comes from her talking about we have to be very soft. And we're the people that no one suspects. You know, the big burly men, the Proud Boys in their, you know, Kevlar cosplaying as soldiers, they're obvious, right? People want you know, take the long way around to avoid them. But these women are homemakers and teachers and they seem friendly and nice and so you don't suspect that they're hate mongers yeah and what it is is like they're going like well we're gonna do food drives we're gonna do like pool uh car pulling for people we're gonna do people's laundry but explicitly only but for white people it's in only our community. for white people for the community so what it is is to go a slow indoctrination and what it is that you feel like you'll feel indebted and like to these people yes. because it's like well they provided me with food when i didn't have any or they provided me with child care when i didn't have any it's or guilting them it's into guilting them, but joining the movement it's not just guilt it is a soft lull of protection mm-hmm. these people have protected me and they're telling me that unfortunately we can't expand our services to people of color our resources would be dwindled if we it's, did that it's disguised as mutual aid when it's actually 
an infestation of the community with their hateful rhetoric. Yes. And um, what's interesting is, so what's the, oh, there's Emily and then there's uh, the other. Leslie is played by, um, she is a really, Olivia Ducardi, or Lucardi, I believe her name is, who, if she's in a, a supporting role and It Follows, she was one of the main characters in the Butcher's Block season of, Channel Zero, Zero, which I really liked. Uh, And so as soon as I saw her in this movie, I was like, she really is kind of becoming like a scream queen at this point. She is one of those people that I think enjoys making horror movies. Yeah, and so in the film, the thing that really dawned on me and kind of stuck to me is they're all just having like this casual conversation. Um, Leslie is introduced. She happens to work with Kim, who owns a business. And... Just like a little grocery store. Yeah, it's a grocery store. And at some point, she's talking about how much she loves Kim's kids and says, I would kill for them. Not I would die for them. But I would kill someone for them. I would kill for them. And that was like the underlining factor. Then she goes on to say that she had been in prison. Or Leslie, yeah. Like that um, Leslie had been in prison and that what she was seeking out was direction and she wanted to someone be to of te- service she wanted someone to tell her what to do because yes. in prison she mentions that she linked up with you know a group of people who really gave her guidance and yeah. so we can read that as what she means is uh the female chapter of the aryan brotherhood so the aryan sisterhood and i mean the name of the group is it's uh, there's an aryan women yeah aryan sisterhood Sis- yeah like uh and so Leslie is this very she's the most deceptive of them all. Yeah. Uh in a group, I mean it's I mean this is a whole, you know, pack of snakes right here and she's the most venomous one yeah. as we come to find out as the movie progresses because uh, it's basically broken into three acts. Mm-hmm. And it's one of those where I think you could easily stage this as a play. Oh yeah. Easily. Um you have the meeting, then you have uh an incident that occurs in Kim's grocery store and then you have the women going to someone's house that they're targeting yes. and these are the three sort of acts of the movie mm-hmm. uh and so when we get to the store incident uh i mean i'm not done finish also the meeting oh yeah, yeah i mean so um during the meeting what i thought was very interesting that um marjorie is the one character that is completely new to everybody and the They've, the character you think oh she might Realize this is bad and leave, maybe. Yeah. And so she has a moment where she starts asking people, um, no one's going to post this online, right? Mm-hmm. And she starts talking about her job, how she like has to take a bus one hour in, one hour out, and how she wanted to get manager pay in order to ensure that she could buy a car get or a, a car, a, a apartment closer, or get an apartment closer. But this, uh, this woman who's Colombian got the job. And she's sounding very, very sympathetic about being like, well, I think it's because she like she had more manager skills than me. But then she starts yes. to slip into the racism because this everyone brown else, bitch, I think, is what she calls her yeah, manager. Starts yeah. to like nudge her to tell the truth, and so Marjorie. Well, it's not is, the truth, but to express her grievance. Yes. Because there's no truth in the grievance. There was truth in that statement where she goes, well, she did have more managerial experience to me, which I'm like, well, ding, ding, ding. That's why they picked her, you idiot. Yeah. But she 
is it's the typical sort of white American grievance where you understand you're not being treated fairly, but because you can't articulate the material circumstances as to why that happened in a coherent way, you instead go with this default pivot into blaming some othered group. Yes. It's the way capitalism protects itself by turning us against each other. And so... Marjorie, who come it, at first is very cautious, suddenly slips into their dialogue with the, mm-hmm. the anger. Like it's not as if one of them went to say, "Hey, Marjorie, I got a car. I'll sell it to you cheap." Or I'm like, or yeah, and they talked about empowering and helping each other. Like or <laughs> Leslie going, "Hey, I need a roommate," kind of thing. Yeah. It was all just them going like, no, Marjorie, you're right in your hatred. And they're just feeding her, provoking her to keep getting angrier and angrier about it. Yes, and it's sort of, and then there's... um, Oh, Alice Alice was an interesting... She only appears in that sequence, in the meeting. But she is, you know who I thought of when I heard her talking? What? My mom. Oh, Lord, yeah. Uh, Because she is a woman who... She's isolated. She admits she has no friends. And her reasoning for that seems to be that, well, they... She, it's likely that she's gotten pushback for her very uh, racist beliefs. And instead of listening to those people who are probably trying to help her, she's withdrawn and they're her enemies and they're against her. Yes. And it sounds like she spends a lot of time online just sort of scrolling through hate rhetoric that's fueling her grievances even more. They're giving her excuses as to why she's in the space that she's in. And just... You, like of all the characters, she's the one who I think a lot of us have probably met or encountered. Yeah, I mean, like the moment that she was saying, "Well, one of the ideas that I have is that what we should do is when we and whenever we see a family of color, we need to chastise them in front mm. of the children, so the children could start to think, be embarrassed by their parents, and start to disrespect be like, them. disrespect them." And the thing is, I have seen that so much within my life which is very subtle it happens very quickly because i remember we had a discussion where you were like i can't remember plenty of times i've been in a fucking walmart in a supermarket where an old lady will be like you gotta get your kid to behave and it's mostly towards a black or brown woman who looks exhausted or uh, the child is having a meltdown and it's never like oh honey do you need a, a like do you need a break or anything it's chastising the parent and how many times I've fucking seen that, even in my workplaces, I've never been daring enough to be go to a person to be like, you need to do something about your child. It's sort of like, I'll just look the other way because I'm like, I don't know what this person is going through. I don't know if this child is having a meltdown at this moment. I The only times I've ever felt uncomfortable is when a parent has physically struck their child in front of me. Mm-hmm. But it's Which a, is something that the, these racists would then encourage. Yeah. The brutalization of children. And, yeah. But it is hearing that like made my skin crawl because it's su- it's a subtle form of fucking racism well, and what was wild to me is and it's in a moment where like the term white privilege has become this thing that uh internet chuds and stupid fucking fascists yeah. act as though doesn't exist or that you're trying to somehow make someone just feel an overwhelming sense of guilt and i've come to terms with well that's not what it is it's an acknowledgement of the underlying structures of the systems we live in and how they uh, quietly benefit others more than, you know, these marginalized groups. And so for me, when you talk about like, oh yeah, I've seen that so many times, there was rarely any time we go to the grocery store and we're not together, especially in the States. 
And I can't remember ever seeing that. And it's realizing that, oh, I'm a white person who's at the grocery store. And also, you know, I'm autistic. So I probably was very focused on getting in and out that I just didn't really look at or pay attention to other people in the store that closely. But for you, because you come from a marginalized group in the West, in the United States in particular, it was so obvious to you when it was so oblivious to me. And I think that's crazy. Well, I... It's it's subtle and it, it it stings to your side because it reminds me of being in the grocery store one time and I remember telling you like that is fucked up and I wanted to say something but I really didn't know what to say was there was this young like black woman who is buying groceries and this other, and like she, there's a pack of strawberries but she has food stamps and this fucking cashier goes. Do, do they? Do the stamps take this out loud? Oh yeah, I remember that. And I just was fuming, but it's almost like you're so you know very well. I acknowledge the fact that it just like what sucks is if I were to bring it up, I would be a, a challenge is difficult. I would be told that I was in the wrong for wanting to defend. Your management this woman. would tell you you need to leave. And it's yeah, just sort but of not like, the that racist it's not bitch. the big deal because like we had pushback. For example, when we were asking why weren't people wearing masks when it was mandated. Well, it wasn't pushback. They were very matter of fact. They were like, uh, we simply are not allowed to enforce it. Yeah, and so it's just like. I like I can't have a diversity and like and a, like training with a cashier like within five minutes, but that's the subtle shit that we allow pass that people of color have to endure. And the thing is, like people of color and those people who live in within poverty are closely aligned to each other that they don't fucking understand it. When the goal is feed the racism because it will prohibit solidarity from ever happening. Yes. And that will ensure those who are in power and their descendants and so on remain in power and that wealth and control over societies is always um, hyper-focused at the top and is something we never get. The rest of us never get. And so the petty squabbles are, you know, it's part of the design. It's not a flaw in the system. It's the way the system it works. Yeah. Um, the... So, yeah, they have a very intense conversation in this meeting. And there's a moment where the – I think it's Alice says that she can type up the notes for the meeting and email it to everybody. And then there's another uh, woman who – I think maybe Nora is her name. She's the one with the grandfather who was in the KKK. She's active on Stormfront. Chimes in, do we really think we should have a paper trail? No, she's like, I don't think we should have yeah, a paper yeah. trail. And so she's kind of poo-pooed by everyone. Well, Emily immediately starts going, did I do something wrong? Was there something wrong? That I- We're not doing yeah, anything Yeah, we're not doing wrong. anything wrong. So why should we be afraid of what we're doing? But then Nora just kind of like sort of responds back, but everything's okay afterwards. Well, it but- tells me that Nora, she came to the meeting to feel these women out to decide, are they as deep into this as I am? And it wouldn't surprise me if Nora doesn't come back to the next meeting because she kind of realizes these people are amateurs or she contacts some of them in private because it's about finding those who you know you can rope in 
to this well, ideology and take them even deeper into well, a darker like, place. Nora does use her softness in a way because afterwards they're all okay. Emily does apologize to her. Yeah. But at, uh, but then the funny thing is like during that meeting, Emily gets caught. The Yeah, the pastor of the church comes downstairs and overhears part of the meeting. And tells her to mm-hmm. leave. Well, he takes her aside away from the other women because he doesn't want to embarrass her, right? And says, you all need to leave now. He's like, I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to hear what you're doing. You need to leave. So she makes the excuse of saying, hey, ladies, let's go to my place for wine. And so some of them agree. Some of them are like, I got to get back to my kids. Like, I have a date with my family, blah, blah, blah. But it is also just the way that she doesn't even want to to show that she had an embarrassment. The way that she doesn't want to show that she's She's got a safe face. She's got a safe face and she has to show that she has some type of power because... They're using a church. Yep. and But it's also the anger that you want to have for the priests, for, for, the, not, pastor. for the pastor, for not making it a bigger deal. Yes. But you can understand, like, I can understand not wanting to make a bigger deal. It's a small it's community. Like, it's a small community. There's like, And, like, I've been witness to pastors being run out of town when they say something and all of a sudden the congregation is challenged. Yeah. And what congregations in America want or at least the ones I've been around, the evangelical, charismatic, bullshit church, they want a pastor that simply reaffirms their hatreds, their grievances, and their preconceived notions about the world. They do not want a religious experience in which they are challenged. They want everything they believe to be reaffirmed. They never have to be wrong. It's the same thing that a lot of uh, conservative uh, media pundits do. It's all about reassuring you that, no, you're right. Don't listen to those people who are questioning you. And the problem having to do is, like, if you don't like it, then leave. Yeah. That's the... And then, you know, you drive them out of town because they're not... Yeah, we don't need them. Uh, And then this transitions... uh, They sort of impose on Kim, the mother of three, I believe. Yeah. That... um, Who own... She owns the store? She owns the store, yeah. That... Oh, could they get a ride? And so she's like, well, I have to go back to my store. And Emily arranges for her husband... Craig to come meet them at the store, and then he'll take them back to her house. And so we've got uh, Emily, our central character. Uh, we've got Marjorie, uh, and Leslie comes along as well, the ex-con. Yeah. And so while they're in the store, uh, two women who I think are meant to be of indigenous descent, are probably mixed race, well, and it's yeah. they're 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 intentionally ethnically ambiguous, which I think is the point. Yeah. Um, I would just say based on the region of the United States, I'm leaning towards they're probably indigenous or, or Asian. Asian. Yeah, because it's the you know the Pacific Coast. Uh, and there's a confrontation. And how does that confrontation start off? Because I don't think these two women did anything. Um, they walk in and it happens to be that like Kim recognizes who they are. They try to they try to say the store is closed, but then they argue that Leslie is buying stuff, and Leslie is like, "Well, I work here," and it's not until after the confrontation sort of occurs where the one of the women is sort of like, "You need to stand up for yourself. This is why this keeps happening." Um, and we find out they're leaving, sisters. They're sisters. So she ends up buying the most expensive bottle. Well, of they wine. make her. They make. They her won't let it. her leave unless she buys it. Yeah, and then. They also antagonize her before she leaves, physically like blocking the her, door, blocking her in her way, calling her a bitch, um, accusing her of being a drug dealer because she had cash to pay for three hundred dollars for the bottle of wine. Yeah. And like the only kind of person that walks around with that much cash 
is a whore or a drug dealer. Yeah. And um, they Which start... is something they would never accuse a white woman yeah, of, right? Like, well, because they... a white woman, if she has cash, then it's because her husband's wealthy, right? Or it's like she made it herself. Yeah. She's she's a girl boss. Um, and when the younger sister makes a remark, well, your brother, you know. Your, to Emily. Yeah, to Emily. Well, your brother is in jail and he's probably like. He's a dirty fucking rapist or he's something. He's a dirty rapist. And you know what they do to rapists in jail. And so that's when we kind of realize who was trying to call her, that she rejected the call, which is interesting because why did she reject the call? And that's something we never really get an answer to in the yeah. movie. Um, and it's implied that one of these sisters was a rape victim of her brother. Yeah, and that's was, how she knows those two women. Yeah, and it's... They kind of probably went to, like, high school together, things like that. Well, I think it had to do with the fact that it was a community thing. Yeah. Like, Kim is close to Emily, it, it appears. They know each other very well. So if Kim... If, if like, Emily have, has these, like, white supremacist beliefs... It means that they that the husbands or the brothers have these uh, beliefs because before that there was a lot of remark towards major uh, like Marjorie and Leslie about them being single and each of them being like I know seven great guys that you like, can go yeah, out the with. next meeting we're all gonna bring a list of ten great guys and it's just basically you know these are a bunch of white dudes that don't fucking have girlfriends because they're fucking assholes well because they've they've leaned into supremacist ideology to the point that. They've become inhuman. Yeah, because they're, like they're nobody disgusting. wants to, uh, like, They have no empathy. They have no kindness, show, compassion. Like from the app, the right stuff that apparently it's a sausage fest, according to them. Oh, the dating app. Yeah, <laughs> it's showing that like a majority of women don't want to be with a man like that. But it when is, it's it's an explanation of you know where do incels come from? Well, I think some of them do have genuine like mental illness and confidence issues that need to be worked on. But then there's a bunch of them who are just right-wing chuds that don't deserve to have companionship because they hate humanity. Like, at their core, they just hate being alive. They hate the human race. And so, yeah, why the hell would anybody want to be with you? Yeah. And so um, that instigates them to decide that they're going to go to... um, These sisters' home. Anne's home, which is, like, the main girl... like. The main girl between the sisters. Yeah, because we find She's out... She's the one that was the rape victim. And we find out that she lives in her mother's home. Their mother died a few years ago. Their, and it, both parents had died. Yeah, and they just inherited the house. And it's in a community that is considered maybe like upper middle class. Yeah, and it's, like... It's, it's they call it like the hill. The hill. So yeah. it's And so it's, yeah, it's... Is it Marjorie or Leslie who gets mad at I think it's Leslie. Marjorie. Marjorie is like, you know, why do these bitches get to live on the hill and I have to, you know, live so far away and all and this. she's yeah. like, you know, complaining that their shed is bigger than her apartment. And not understanding the material circumstances of why this happened. Like, no, you are right. Inequality is bad, but it has nothing to do with these women being BIPOC. It has nothing to do with any of that. Your circumstances are not shitty because of non-white people. Yeah, and during this event, we see Emily ridicule and get on her husband, Craig. Because Craig does not... Like, Craig's not a good guy, but he has a level of precaution that he is trying to discourage them from going over to this house and doing anything. Yeah. And then he relents and is like, you have five minutes. And after five minutes passes and they've kind of gone around, they've handled objects, uh, just kind of general damage but nothing major in any way yet he is sort of we need to get the hell out of here and at that point it's too late Anne and uh lily have come home 
And I don't want to go any further into the details of what happens. Yeah. Because, first of all, it's very triggering if you're someone who would not be able to handle, like, assault. Though I do want to say that the most explicit evil things are not shown. Mm -hmm. But due to sound design and the performances by the actors, I don't think it softens the blow. Oh, no. I think it's... It makes it more intense, and the fact that it does play out in real time, you're never given a breather. It no. just happens, and it keeps going, and it escalates, and it gets worse. And this is the sequence where we begin to see Leslie usurp Emily, who I think believed herself to kind of be the leader of the group. And Leslie, the ex-con, suddenly starts barking orders, doing vile things... And everyone just kind of, she's and, almost sort of this and yelling, this well of gravity that yeah. kind of pulls everybody down she's into like hell. She's like yelling, with her. "I have good ideas, I have great ideas." Yeah. but it's and it makes it ironic because earlier she was the one saying how much she loved prison because of she was told what to do, and then we see she's the one commanding these women what to do, and, she, and they just do it, yeah. even though they're expressing their discomfort with it or their yeah. worry about it. But they do it anyway. Yeah, like you hear Kim panic going like, I can't live without my children. I can't live. She wants to leave and go She's home. She's like, yeah. I, like, if I lose my kids, I can't lose my kids. But, but she stays. But she stays. But the reason that I want to go back to Craig and Emily, mm -hmm. it is because it also shows you the power that women like her have. Mm -hmm. Because she starts berating her husband, who's telling her, we shouldn't do this. This is a bad idea. Um, we shouldn't do this. And she starts calling him all sorts of names. She's calling him a pussy. He's calling She's him a emasculating bitch. him, yeah. She's like getting in his face, being uh, just telling him that he doesn't have the power to do what she needs to do. Well, she's, she's playing like, into toxic masculinity and those stereotypes yes. in order to get him to do as she and wants. And how many fucking times have we witnessed that to some degree? Or we've seen like, friends push that kind of ideology on their spouses in order to get what it is that they want at the end of the day and like it is toxic it is horrific but it's also like she is the th person that is pushing him to allow her to do this but he's Only also a grown like person who could you know and it's, it's one of those where yeah domestic abuse is is bad but I don't feel like I would be mad at him for striking her across the face in that scene because the things that she ends up doing and the way she allows Leslie to pull her down is someone needs to shake the shit out of her. Well, like, like she does, has lost her fucking mind. Like, at one point, like, he does slap her. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But it doesn't, but, yeah, it doesn't make But the thing is, difference. like, she is so convinced. She's, she's right. She's already in this. She's right. She has to do this. When it's, like... It, it is like Leslie's idea. She's the one that pushes them, uh, like when they're at their store. Oh, let's go do this. Let's go do this. And Emily goes, she acts like a, you know, a little girl that's, you know, been told how pretty and smart she is. She's like, oh my God, yes. Like all excited. Like, oh my God, guys, this is a great bonding experience. Yet, however, it still sticks to my side when you think about like, how Emily and Craig interact because again I don't that's not a loving relationship at least what we see a loving relationship <laughs> but it's also someone 
who's manipulating someone else to go into an area that they don't want to go to. Yeah, it's toxic power dynamics in that These relationship. Toxic power dynamics, and then the pleading that happens, but afterwards between like Emily and Leslie, but and, like that power dynamic that keeps seesawing between them, and that one doesn't want to give it up, and the other one doesn't give a fuck. Well, and what we see is the sisterhood between these Aryan women completely collapses. Like, and it doesn't even take that long, is they just turn on each other in a way that didn't surprise me, because if you study fascism and you contrast it with, uh, you know, socialism and communism, where those ideologies put a big emphasis on solidarity and mutual aid and the idea of, you know, I lift you up and in turn you'll lift me up. There's this communion there, this community. Fascism is the antithesis of this. Fascism is hyper-individualism. It is the atomization of individuals into their most basic form where they are left alone and helpless and they have no supports and you're told to pick yourself up by your bootstraps. It's your job to figure it out. And that's what we see happening among these women. And it's, I mean, that's why there is part of me that feels very confident that fascism will never ultimately be the dominant force in the world because after a certain point, there, the, the, there's that stupid cliche of they go, oh, you know what happens with communism? Eventually you run out of other people's money. Well, my thing is, you know what happens with fascism? Eventually everybody splits into their own self-interests and like buries themselves in their own personal grievances, and then you don't have anything resembling a community left. It's a bunch of people that hate each other who are just waiting for the opportunity to you know pull out the knives and start carving away. And so it's a damned philosophy. Uh, it It is a dead-end ideology that results in the obliteration of the species at the end of the day. Yep. <laughs> uh, and so it is, it's a very intense watch. Yes. It is, but it's a very timely, I, you know, I hate saying, oh, it's a very important movie. Because it is. I mean, especially- People need to see movies like this. They need to hear people so casually say these words, uh, but from the point of view of the director, who is not one of them, and what she's doing is she needs you to hear this to emphasize to you how lackadaisical these people feel about their hatreds and how unassuming they can be and the extremes that they can be pushed to so easily. I think it's also, it, it reminds me of something that I saw online about somebody explaining that you get to know your enemy in an intimate manner. Mm -hmm. So as a circling back towards the beginning, when we were talking about how I'd witnessed certain things, but you hadn't noticed because you have like white privilege and how I've noticed because I'm part of a marginalized group and it is at times it's like you get to know your enemy in such an intimate manner when you've experienced these type of things because a lot of times the occurrences like the way that we why this film is important we look at the midterms right now that happened that apparently a red wave was supposed to happen well, and then, we look at the voting uh, it's majority white women that keep voting against their best interests. yeah if white women changed their votes then, I mean, I'm not going to say that the American political system works. I think the Democrats are, I think Republicans are, you know, fascist max, and then Democrats are diet fascism. 
And so I don't think the Democrats winning fills me with any sense of like joy or hope. Yes, but let's... But it, it, it is a litmus test to kind of see where people, based on our misconceptions of what these parties are, where people's interests lie. Yeah. And it's white women predominantly are voting for fascism, outright yeah. fascism in America. And like, and that feeling that it can be so, it's a, it, it can be such a horrible feeling to, to go through because the thing that I wish that I could explain to people is like, yes, my closest friendships have been with women, but my worst betrayals have been be- be- uh, like from women of uh, like white women. Never, w- I've been of women of no color. <laughs> because the thing is, like, to me, it's always been black women that have lifted up my confidence ever since I've moved to this. Uh, when I moved to the states, they were the ones going like, "I love your hair," da da da. Like, I love your skin. Like, it was uplifting. It was white women when it came deep down inside. They were going to have a preference through their white friends. With or without noticing. And they don't fucking notice that shit at the end of the day. And they're the ones that cut deeper because they're the ones that are like, again, <laughs> boss babe. No, I take everyone in. Oh my God, I would love to have like a gay bestie. But when it's, it's they are reflecting toxic white femininity, which is the mirror of that toxic masculinity yeah, we were talking so about. Yeah, so like, these are people that will be like, they will consume other media like nobody's fucking business but they can be the worst fucking allies because it's like women that for it's always white women that fucking love drag queens but like won't stand up for them it's always fucking white women that they're gay bestie will adopt like like african-american like vocabulary but then the moment you call them out they shut down and they can't handle the fucking criticism. Uh. And they they have to be so delicate in their fucking ways. And it's always like, for example, working in nonprofit, it's majority white women who have this white guilt to come in and telling people how to fix it. And a lot of times when like we would raise our hand to be like, hey, can't you just get someone for, within that community and hire them so they can... Un-? like It would just go over their fucking head because they'd be like, but I've come here to help. They want to be praised for the lowest effort thing they could do. Yeah. Um, and speaking of you know, where we work, I was an elementary school teacher in Tennessee. So mm-hmm. my coworkers were far and away 95% women at all times. And watching a movie like this you know, makes me reflect where – and we also kind of talk about my autism and how one of the realizations I've had is – the way I've perceived other people my whole life has been filtered through that disability where I could I would basically categorize people into two groups in my head. There were people that were phonies and then there were people who intimidated me. And I realized the people that intimidated me were real. They had genuine, like what they exuded from themselves was a genuineness. And I was intimidated by that because... I was masking so much. I was putting on a performance out of survival, and I was intimidated by people that didn't have to do that. And it was almost like an admiration, I think, in a way. Yeah. Uh, But the people that I would feel the most welcomed by who were genuine, it was normally white people I would be intimidated by who had confidence. Black people I never felt intimidated by. I felt very welcomed at all times. Uh And then I think of, you know, my last placement as a teacher. And, I mean, most of the the white women I worked with, 
I think we had one black uh, certified or two black certified teachers in the whole building. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd say most of the white women were fine. They were, you know, very docile, passive, typical people you might expect. Some were exceptionally nice, and I, you know, I definitely miss them. But there were some that I could see fitting into a group like this, where yeah. they would, you know, just make those little comments that were not explicitly racist. They didn't use slurs, but lots of judgmental comments always focused at children and parents who were BIPOC. Uh, and always in a way that they had an out where or an excuse that they weren't being racist. They no, that's not what I meant, right? If you knew yeah. if you would confronted them with it, and then also you know, there's the white woman tears that are you know yeah. that the you know the this the death ray of white women where they're just like I'll I'll eliminate anyone that's challenging me with this. Uh, and you see that in in this movie too. There's white, but what's funny is they direct the white women tears at each other, so it and they're invincible. To it, and they're just like, shut the fuck up and get in the fucking van. I mean, like, like I <laughs> I have a recollection of one time. This is a few schools back that you had worked in. I was sitting down talking to one of the substitute teachers. Mm, she I know who you're there. talking about. She'd been there for years, and she was just talking about like the behavior of the kids. And then suddenly, as I'm sitting there, she looks left to right, leans over and whispers, well, the behavior wouldn't be so bad if there weren't so many black kids. And I, like, I remember leaning back and I told her, do you know who you're talking to? And silence. There was never a fucking apology. Her brain couldn't process it. But it was also (laughs) sort of like, it is... This thing that because I don't have an accent, I don't... Like you, if you really wanted to, it was one of those where you could pass for white. If you really leaned into it. Like if I streamed my hair and like did my makeup. And you're married to a white man. Yeah, and like, but it is, it was enraging because it's sort of like... I met these kids. I've seen the quality of parents. You had amazing parents yeah. in there. Like kids who gave a fuck. And then also parents who gave a fuck about the other kids too. Because yeah. they were kids of color. Mm-hmm. And like we like having witnessed how like like the parents of color took care of each other as much as they could. Mm-hmm. But for her to fucking say that enraged me because i was just like what kind of fucking treatment have you given these kids as a substitute who's there every fucking day well and this is another instance where you know i'm going to promote communism because this is the difference this fascist right-wing ideology is based on incoherence it is personal grievances transformed into political platforms communism tells you you have to undertake material analysis If there is a problem in your community, if you notice behaviors that don't make sense, that are violent, what you need to do is you have to look at the underlying circumstances. If it's true that the quote-unquote black kids are behaving in that way, I'm not going to pass judgment on them. I'm going to go, what's happening in their community that's leading to this? People don't just act like that for no reason. There must be something fueling that fire and you know, nine times out of ten, you're going to find economic inequality at the root of this. It's because people are forced to live in squalor. Slavery never really ended. It just got rebranded and reshaped and resold. You produce 
people that express themselves in violent, incoherent ways. The tools of effective expression have been kept from them for this purpose. Like, once again, this is how the people in power stay in power. Make us at each other's throats all the time over the most pointless, stupid differences, and they will always have power, and we will always be grounded in the dirt, and nothing we do will matter. And it's when you unite with people against this system, that's when you destroy these fascists. They have no ground to stand on in the face of true solidarity. And that's something I don't know if the United States is capable of. I think there are small clusters of people that could do it. But I think the racism and the supremacy and the colonialism and the imperialism is so deep and entrenched in the roots. I mean, the fucking Boston Tea Party was an act of racism. Like, the very foundations of the country are rooted in this evil. And I don't know if you can preserve what is and stop it. In my opinion, you have to burn the fields and plant something new. Yeah. That's the solution here. Right. So, would you recommend watch this movie? Yeah. Uh, I would say if you have the <laughs> stomach for it, it's not a an escapist horror movie. This is a I'm going to take reality and shove your face in it horror movie. The director is very has a very deft touch. She never shows you more than she thinks you can handle. And she finds a way to end the movie on a note of hope. Yeah. There is a note of hope there at the end that I didn't know if it was coming. I thought, man, this is going to be a bleak-ass ending. And we just get this little tiny sign that there is a way to defeat this these people and this way of thinking. Ruben Ostland is... A, an interesting director. He hails from uh, Sweden and seems to specialize in social satire. Yeah. I'd previously seen um, The Square, which is a, a look at the modern art movement, as well as Force Majeure, which is a film uh, that was remade horribly in the United States with Will Ferrell and Julia Louis-Dreyfus. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, the original is, you should see, uh, and is about a cowardly father who kind of has to deal with his cowardice being on display during a family vacation in the Alps. Mm-hmm. Uh, Triangle of Sadness, his uh, Ostland's first English-language film. Yeah, uh, He still employs many non-English-speaking actors in it as well. And the square like had English in it, right? No, it was in Swedish. I think there was some English in it, but it was oh, okay. predominantly Swedish. Yeah. Uh, and so this film is divided into three distinct acts. Uh, all of the acts follow a couple, Carl and Yaya, who are both supermodels, and they're—I mean, not supermodels, just regular models, working models. Yeah, I who mean, are who are aspiring to for more? Yeah, but he Carl is obviously the main character. Yeah, and we're sort of seeing the world through his eyes. In the first act, it spends most of its time establishing that relationship between Yaya and Carl, and kind of his career as a model and how it's not that fruitful. The second act takes place on a yacht, as they have taken part in a cruise of other wealthy people, mm-hmm. and then the third act takes place on a an island. That they become stranded on. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in general, Ariana, what did you think of Triangle of Sadness? Um, I thought it was a great film. Now, 
I cannot look at this film to be like, oh my god, this was uh, obviously hailing for communism or socialism. It is more... It presents. Of, it presents, yeah, it presents certain it. ideas, but it, it is more... It's of cynical. A, yeah, it's cynical in so many different ways. So the beginning of the film, we're just presented with a large group of models standing there being interviewed. All by, male models. All male models mm-hmm. uh, being interviewed. And part of it is um, making fun of the way that brands present themselves. And how the models can... Are sort of chameleons. They can yeah. just switch between the tone of the brand. Well, it's like, uh, they're like, Balencia, you're going to be looking down on your consumer. Oh, H&M, you're going to be happy. You're going to be uh, easygoing because you're... You're, you're affable. Sh- you're approachable if you're, you're H&M. Approachable. You're approachable. Like, we have all people of color. And, you know, you're just there for the masses to consume. Balencia, again, looking Balenciaga. down. Balenciaga. looking down. Like, it's supposed to be, like, the, the higher brands yeah. look down on... They revile the, the customer. They revile the customer. Like, it's it's appalling that you're even paying this money, but we are so much better than you. Um, and also, uh, it remarks on the fact that male models only get one-third of the salary that female models do. Yeah, there's a lot of play with gender roles in this movie. Yes. And so we get to a dinner that Yaya and Carl are having. We don't really... Fancy restaurant. A fancy Expensive. restaurant where she kind of jokes that, yes, it's a little stuffy, but she's occupied herself by doing her makeup and he's gesturing to her about the bill and she thinks that, oh, he's going to take over. That's fine. He's going to pay for it. Then they're trying to have a discussion about money. And I do agree with this part, like money, she's saying the reason she doesn't want to talk about money is that money is unsexy. And he feels that it's kind of ridiculous that they're not talking about money. But well, And he talks about he yearns to have a relationship where they don't follow uh, gender stereotypes. And that they're best friends, but she's like, I don't want to fuck my best friend. <laughs> yeah, she's not interested in what he wants or what he claims that he wants. Yes. So um, they get into an argument. It's uncomfy for a while, but I think the interesting thing is uh, as they're arguing about money before they leave the restaurant, her card is declined. And she's he, apparently supposed to make more. I mean, she's a female model, so she's supposed to have a ton more yeah. money than him. Um, and at no point does he ask her why did her card decline? Is she okay? Um, she's kind of upset with him for other reasons. He just and, becomes very put upon that he has to pay for another yes, meal. But she's also remarking at the fact that he is staying at her in her hotel room, which means like that's been paid for for work or that she's paying for it. And he doesn't say anything about that, about the fact that he's staying in her hotel room free. for free. Yeah. And um, she, once they reunite in the hotel room, they kind of have she admits that she was being manipulative towards him and he's just being like this is why i love you because you're telling me things but the funny thing is like at no point does he ask her questions he has no interest in her he just wants it to be quote unquote equal when it isn't equal well, like that's one of my things is i did it was a relationship in which i don't feel that either of these people love the other one well it was purely like He's hot and I'm hot. And he's like, well, she's hot and I'm hot. Well, she, so we need to go together because we're both hot. But she even tells him, I'm dating you because it looks good and yeah. I like you. 
And he's trying to, he's telling her, I'm going to make you love me. You're going to fall in love with me. Don't worry about it. You're going to fall in love with me. And, and so I think it's very clear that he's the idealist and she is the cynic. Yeah, she's a little bit more realistic where she... Well, not right. She's cynical. Yeah, but she's kind of like, she's explaining to him, like, I did this to you because I wanted to make sure, like, hey, if I fall pregnant, I decide to have the kid, can you maintain me? Yeah. Can you keep, like... And that's why it's this sort of unspoken thing that, yeah, we're together now, but eventually I'm going to marry some older rich guy because that's what models do, who will provide for me, and I don't have to do this anymore. And he's trying to tell her, like, you don't have to go... But it's never, like, this weird empowering thing. It's more like he just wants it to be him. He never says any reason why he loves her besides the fact that she's beautiful. There's so little reflection going on between these two characters. Like, these are characters who just... They are purely holistic people. Yeah. Where they don't think about anything. There's no analysis... There's barely any awareness. It's just, we exist, we happen to be born in a way that is found conventionally attractive by society, we're going to exploit that as long as we can, and that's all we really care about. Yeah, and then we're placed into uh, this fancy yacht. Yeah, and that's where I would say the meat of the movie takes place. Yes. Is that second act. And so we have this luxury yacht. I mean, this is beyond anything any of us will ever experience and there is there's and then we we really start to look at the hierarchy of power yeah uh because early on we have a conversation there's the chief steward paula yes who we already see well there's a hierarchy among the employees because we have these white stewards who are supposed to say yes to everything everything yeah everything a customer asks they must reply in the affirmative and they do everything in their power to deliver it but then we have the second class of staff that are non-white. I think they're Filipino. Yeah. And uh, that are, they're almost operating in this sort of belly of the ship. They're beneath everything. They're unseen. They don't speak. They just put their headphones in. They clean the rooms. They don't... They the, scrub the, the toilet. The guests don't really interact with them in the way you would interact with a human being. They're the invisible staff. Yeah. And... The, the funny thing from early on, before the guests have even boarded, is it's become clear there's a crisis with the captain, played by Woody Harrelson, who has just locked himself in his quarters. Yeah. There is an um, assistant, or a second-in-command, I guess that would be his first officer, who is Darius, who basically just kind of has the power handed to him until they can figure out what the hell's going on with the captain. Yep. Uh, and... What's going on with the captain, I think, is where we see Ostlin being incredibly cynical. Because we come to find that the captain has kind of immersed himself in uh, communist literature and he's a theory. Marxist. He doesn't yeah. want to call himself a communist. Oh, yeah. He's, he gets mad about that. You're right. He goes, I'm not a communist. I'm a fucking Marxist. <laughs> and so he is consumed by this economic hierarchical thinking. But... It's clear he has not asked questions or had any guidance because he doesn't really go about explaining his ideas in any coherent, tangible way other than just kind of – it's it's sort of a reactionary person 
encountering communism and, or, and not really knowing how to process it, what to the do with it. The way of viewing it is that this is a man who's suddenly mourning his uh, like ideology. Yeah, he, or his identity. His identity, who's in mourning and then not knowing what to do with all this information as he has witnessed the uh, you know the tiers of classes within his, the, the boat that he works in we don't know if he owns it we don't know what type of it, I doubt his, he does like his financial <laughs> situation is we just know that he is unhappy and doesn't want to have to mingle amongst the people yeah it's like yeah it's he he realizes he's at the top of this hierarchy of staff on the boat he's sort of the king of the staff right yeah but he's still subservient to the guests because He's asked by Paula, you know, when we have not had the captain's dinner yet, you know, where we have a captain's table, people, you know, pay to sit at your table, it's a big deal, and he doesn't want to do it, but it is a, an expectation of him in his job, and he knows yeah. he'll lose his job if he doesn't do it. He just happens to choose the worst possible night to have the captain's dinner, but which yeah. we'll get into in a little bit. Yes. Uh, but still, you know, the weather is good in the part we're talking about. Uh, Yorma Bjorkman... The uh, he's by himself on the boat. Yes. Uh, one of the most pathetic characters yeah. in the movie, who has a the third act. He has the worst moment in the movie, I think, which is really awful to have yeah, to watch. Just... Um, he is a a coder, I believe. I the, I forget yeah. when he starts talking about like how he made his wealth. It had something to do with computer. Apps. Yes, yeah. that's what. It's... And what was it? The apps did. I remember it being something like kind of unsavory. I have no idea. It was idea. exploitative. It, it was, was ex- exploitative, but he, he's he's like different companies come to me wanting to make apps, and I am like, and he's like, I made the code for them. So he's and- yeah. The way he talks about his work, he divorces himself from any sort of moral responsibility he might have in what he's doing, and that you know, well, they just come to me, and I have a skill, and they pay me. He's on the boat by himself. He's clearly cruising for women. He's and he's thinking that his money. Affords him the ability to like purchase a woman in well, some way or impress them to at do, minimum. Do the fact that he was supposed to come with someone and that person left him by himself. Yes, which I do believe that probably did happen, and now he's just like. And he, he's a very sad character, but he's sort of he's made his own misery in a lot and, of ways. And um, before that, we're introduced to Dmitri, who is a Russian. Um, Hyper capitalist. <laughs> he is. This man loves money. He loves crushing people. He yeah. he loves it. But before we're introduced to them, we are dealing with the fact that um, Carl and Yaya are on this boat. We don't know why they're on this boat. We just have the sense that it is exclusive. Well, because yeah, it's in the previous scene. It's all about you know sh- her cards declined. He's worried about money, but yet they go on this trip. They go on this trip, and we figure out that Yaya is an influencer, mm. and it, it was the trip was given to her for free, so she could so tr- like she post on Instagram go about and it. post to Instagram about it. Carl is feeling deep insecurity about this because she happens to be looking at one of the like one of the guys that works on the boat. Oh, yeah, crew He's member shirtless. He has a beard. Um, he's like, oh, um, do you find him hot? And Yaya just kind of like agrees. Of course, yeah. yeah. Of course, she. I find him hot. And so he starts to question everything about their relationship because he was mentioning like, oh, well, what if I said something about like a hot stewardess? And she's like, do you find any of these stewardess ha- like hot? She isn't displaying jealousy, but he is. Yeah, she's like, I'm not saying I'm going to fuck this guy. It's just an acknowledgement of, yeah, he's physically attractive. So he goes over to pa- uh, Paula. 
and complains. complains. He turns into a Karen at this yes, point. He yeah, he complains. Then suddenly turns around and starts to ask about the engagement rings. So what he oh yeah because let's to... let's talk about it. is this is something that I did not know happens on these cruises because of course you know I don't live among the wealthy elite. They're like hawking jewelry and watches oh, yeah. constantly, yeah, yeah, yeah. which is so strange. But, but I guess in a way, it's like a it's like a, those in flight catalogs, right? Yeah, it's it's showing you again the the exclusivity of this place because because well, is... in Yorma at one point he wants to impress Yaya, and then there's another woman, Ludmilla, who is. Dimitri has brought his wife and his mistress on the cruise, yes. and it's just open that it is his wife and his mistress. And so Yorma approaches Ludmilla and Yaya at the on, at the bar on the boat because they're sitting by themselves away from their partners. And once he realizes they're taken, he tries to save face and act like he's totally cool with that. And he wasn't hitting on him. And hey, would you ladies, let's go. I want to buy you some jewelry right now. And he's he just as a thank you for having this drink declining, with me. And then he tells them, don't worry about it. I'm very rich. Yeah. And so um, it is this interesting thing that Dimitri and Carl are having a conversation as these two women are kind of having a pity moment for this rich app dude. Dimitri is kind of like poking fun at Carl because mm -hmm. he's kind of like, um, Dimitri... why are you with, with uh, Yaya? And he's like, yeah. well, you know, maybe I'll be successful and we'll get married. And he's like, no, you got it fucking wrong. You get successful, then the women come to you. Yeah, Dimitri and... is, he is a very comfortably dominant man. Yes. And so Dimitri then gestures to watch... Uh, uh, Jorma talked to these women. He's like, let's see if he finally get get up the nerve. Oh, isn't this sad? Up until the point that when he does offer to buy them like Rolexes, they take him up on <laughs> that. They, no, it's you could see Dimitri suddenly his, yeah, his he dims down a little because before there's this hierarchy happening, right? Dimitri sees himself as I'm the quote unquote alpha. I'm the richest one here. This Jorma guy is just some you know beta male who's embarrassing. And but, then when Jorma like you know flaunts his wealth, that's what gets Dimitri. That's what wounds him. Yeah, he, yeah. He, he he doesn't really call his you know Mitch a mistress over. He's just kind of like. Disengages from Carl. Well, because that would be weak of him if he called her yeah. over. Yeah, he uh, like disengages from Carl because to him he's like Carl can't do anything at this moment. His girlfriend's the one who got them on on the ship, um, and just goes along his day. Uh, so yeah, we we're introduced, and then there Vera, who is Dimitri's wife, yes. correct? She has a moment where she has this encounter with one of the stewards who. I think it's new to the boat and has taken it very seriously when they were informed in the pre-boarding meeting among the stewards that you never say no. It's always yes. Whatever they want, yes. Well, this poor young steward meets Vera who starts ruminating about what are your dreams? What do you want? She's pretending to give a shit about this service worker. Yeah. Which is something, I mean, we see wealthy people, especially I would say you see it more from wealthy women who feel a sense of guilt. The wealthy men revel well, in their, like, yeah. domination. Wealthy women do it a lot to women of color. Yeah. Where they want to go, no, 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 I'm one of the good ones, right? Kind of like in White Lotus. <laughs> yeah. And so Vera is like, you, what, you need to have fun today and demands that this steward 
swim. Go and for a swim. Go into the water and sit there with her, and that she would, Vera would pretend to be serving her. And I'd be like, like, yeah, well, I'll play the steward, and you can play the guest. And she's like, you can have champagne. And this poor steward is going like, no, yes, no. She's like, no, I shouldn't. This but, is she, the, but yeah, she, she can't say no. <laughs> but she's not supposed to say no. So we see her get flustered. And then suddenly, once this poor woman who is in her fucking uniform is sitting in the water. About, yeah, jacuzzi. That is when Vera goes, I demand that everybody. The whole staff go for a swim. swim. And then there is this whole sequence of the steward going to Paula and saying, could somebody please tell this woman it's against regulations for the staff to swim? Paula knows she tells the woman, the woman doesn't believe her. She basically is like, well, I only believe it if it comes from the captain. And we know the captain refuses to come out of but his quarters. It's also lack of solidarity yeah. at the end of the day because Paula goes to the second in command and being like, you as the second in command can go. And he's like, nope, no. He doesn't want to I'm deal with these people. It. Yeah. And it becomes this horrible thing where Paula is trying to explain like, people have to, like, she's like, I'm setting up for dinner. Uh, people like it is not going well, to be the, good weather. Well, conditions. at one point when they we need to like she, they're they were supposed to staple things down. Yeah, they didn't have time that's, for it. Oh yeah, because that's the captain finally decides on his dinner, and it happens to be the night that they're predicting a massive storm while they are at sea, which was a the night they planned to kind of batten the hatches down and just have kind of a very low energy night. The captain submits, that's when I want to have my dinner, and he's and, doing it because he's trying to avoid the guests as much as possible, and so. They then submit to Vera, and they're like, okay, the whole fucking staff is going to go for a swim. There's like a water slide into the ocean off the boat. And they have to set it up because it was not set up. Yeah, so they have to inflate this slide. They have to go around to the entire staff, including people that are down below deck that are the engine maintenance people. They have to go into the kitchen and tell all the, the cook and all of his, you know, his sous chef and his staff that they need to... Go swim, and I love how the the chef goes. The food's gonna be bad, and it's because it's gonna sit out, and it's all seafood that they're having. So the seafood is gonna be sitting out, uh, unrefrigerated, all afternoon while the staff and the crew of the boat have to fucking put on their trunks and go swim in the ocean, go float there until this crazy rich woman is also, satisfied. It's this weird thing that they don't coordinate this the way oh, that yeah, they no, should no. have. It could have been like half of the. Uh, this There's just like no. a line of everybody taking no, a turn. It's everyone taking a turn. They don't like it. Is it's this lack of solidarity. It's this lack of planning. It is this the whims to, of the wealthy. The, the whims of the wealthy. Paula doesn't want to go against the guests because at the end of the day, she's been conditioned. She's been conditioned. But not only that, they're supposed to get a tip. They're supposed to get fucking tipped. And no one's getting tipped. And like, so she is like, well, no one's going to get tipped if I don't do what this fucking woman yeah. says. Because Dimitri has said multiple times, I will buy this fucking boat. I will buy the yacht. My wife gets whatever the fuck she wants. He swings his dick around the whole time and on the boat. You're like, okay. And that is when disaster hits. Well, yeah. And so then they have the, the captain's dinner, which is... A comedy jewel moment. It is so funny in the way Ostland just leans completely in to the most base toilet humor. Because, and I mean, he's a cynic. So one of the things he's also saying here, sadly, and this is a point where I disagree with him, is this movie is not going to change anything. This movie isn't going to fix anything. Nothing can be fixed. 
all we can do is mock these people and enjoy mocking them, and that's about as much as you can hope. I tend to believe that, you know, I think somewhere in the world this problem can be solved, likely not in the West, and that's yeah. okay. Asia, Africa, there's lots of other places in the world, um, South America. And so Ostland gives this as like, here's your treat, audience. Because the food has sat out, it has gone bad, which leads to projectile vomiting in the dining room. The boat is also completely off balance, which was another... I love the cinematography as the dinner begins because you have people who are leaning at what we see as impossible angles, but it's the way the camera has been mounted. The camera has been mounted on the floor of the ship, so the people are moving, but the camera is moving with the ship, and it makes people f look like they're standing at these slants that are impossible, but it makes sense from their perspective. Yeah. Uh, so we have the rocking of the ship, which is causing seasickness. We have the spoiled seafood. Just vomit everywhere. People falling downstairs, slipping and falling in their own vomit. Um, just erupting into chaos. The dinner falls apart. People just head back to their rooms where they continue to vomit. Then as they digest the food, that turns into diarrhea. Because the guys from the engine weren't down there to keep you know, maintaining you know, the plumbing, uh, a toilet backs up and there is just a torrent of diarrhea <laughs> that flows through the boat. And then by morning, a... I think they're somewhere near Africa, like the northern coast of Africa, like yeah. they're in the Mediterranean. A African pirate ship shows up and chaos ensues. Yeah. And, and that's and this is where, you know, the second act of the movie ends and we begin the third act. And in many ways, each of these acts is a film unto itself. Yeah, but the second act we can't ignore the fact that between the chaos mm -hmm. Captain Thomas and Dimitri oh, having yeah. a discussion about capitalism. As people are vomiting Marxism. and shitting in the hallway, they're talking about, yeah. They're, they have books of quotes. I loved that. They like have these little books where they've written down quotes that defend their ideologies. And it just becomes a back and forth. And I thought, my God, I don't think I've ever seen a better portrayal of the feudal nature of online debating than this scene. <laughs> because it's just people vomiting up these little, uh, you know sayings these little bumper sticker phrases with no real well, conversation yeah. with them. no conversation they're ignoring yeah the chaos but no real exploration of what any of that shit means only to lock themselves in a room to, to continue their discussion well, and then they get on the pa system while people are being sick and continue to have their debate with each other while it forcing everybody to listen yes and it's just inane. It's, yeah, you know, I think there's great ideas in Marxism. I think it's much better than capitalism. But this captain is not, he doesn't really know what he's talking about. He he understands that something's wrong, but he hasn't spent enough time in study and really coming to understand these ideas and what they mean and what he should do that all he can do is just shout quotes back and forth with this man. And Dimitri loves it he revels in this which is what you often see with the more you know right-leaning people online is they just love the fight they love the conflict of it yeah and so it's just they revel in just the the anger they're getting out of their opponent and the competition of it well i think it's also the fact that the uh captain thomas in a way has accepted his end he's a naive person no not naive i think he, he is he is naive about what can be done He's naive because it's sort of like he doesn't know that he, the impact that he can make. But he's yeah. also sort of like 
he is at a point where it's sort of like it's self-destructive this guy yes. is going to the point yes. that he's like all right the ship's gonna go down i'm the captain but i'm not gonna give a lead of how to make this better i'm yeah. just gonna sink with it yeah and so he has leadership but he fails to be a but leader dimitri who does want to live in a weird way is so consumed with his entertainment of this that he never goes hey where's my mistress and wife he yeah. is just he's drunk he's physically drunk and he's like emotionally drunk from he's drunk on the this, conflict the yeah. conflict so he's like ah here's someone that i keep saying that i'm gonna buy the boat so i'd be their boss yeah so let and me he, bully him he, and he's also saying to, like whenever paula comes in being like i need the captain to do something and she he's like hey honey don't worry about it. I'm going to buy the boat. I'm your new boss. I'm going to be your new boss, so none of this will matter. You'll start a clean slate. And in a way, he's right. It doesn't matter because the next sequence of the movie is uh, we uh, almost everyone else dies except for a handful of people who are now trapped on an island. Yes. <laughs> and so, once again, it's Yaya and Carl who are our through line through the whole movie. They survive along with um, Yorma, the coder from before who was alone. Dimitri survives. Um, and then we have Therese, who is a uh, is she German? Yes, she film? yeah she only speaks German. She doesn't speak English or anything and else. And she she's is, a, she's a, a paraplegic. Yes. And so she was on a wheelchair the whole time on the boat, and then now on the island they put her in one of the lifeboats and kind of drag that around when they mm-hmm. need to. Uh, and then you also have um, a character we have not seen before, uh, Nelson, who just shows up. And Dimitri immediately thinks this guy's one of the pirates. He, Nelson claims that he was one of the guys that worked down in the engine room. And because we really didn't see much of the engine room, the audience is also sort of, he could be a pirate, I don't know. But he, he's a survivor. We know that. And yeah. he, he assimilates himself into this group of survivors mm-hmm. and doesn't really present a threat. Uh, they find out that uh, one of the lifeboats washes up, which is kind of a, a submarine-like vehicle. Mm-hmm. And inside is Abigail, who was one of the Filipino cleaning staff. She was a toilet manager. Yeah. And she had an encounter with Carl on the boat, I think about coming in and cleaning the room, and they were like arguing with her. They didn't want her to come in and clean the room. Yeah. And it was sort of, she has a schedule. She needs to clean the room. She gets in trouble if the rooms aren't clean. Yeah. Uh, And so there's that power dynamic of she just basically has to say yes to these people, even though they're fucking her over. Yeah. Well, on the island, inside this lifeboat is... Rations, pretzel sticks mostly, uh, and water and water, chips. yeah, water and chips, and so she allows them to have some. But then very quickly we see that she has the skills that are needed to have a chance at survival on the island. She knows how to catch, uh, she catches an octopus. She knows how to start a fire. She cooks it up. The hilarious. Oh, and then Paula is also there. I forgot mm-hmm. Paula, and there's a hilarious scene where Abigail. It's very much the little red hen. That's what I kept thinking of. Who will help me do this? And it's not that they won't help her. They have no survival skills. Yeah, because she asks, like, <laughs> after she's caught the octopus, does anybody know how to light a fire? And no they're one just does. all sitting there, like, going, no. And she's like, does anybody know how to clean an octopus? Nope. No. <laughs> and, like, she is cooking. And when she's done cooking, she's going, one for you, one for me, one for you, one for me. Hands out the rations. She has half of it. She has half of it. And Paula tries to convince her that she needs to let go of those rations. Yeah, it's like, no, 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 but you have so much more than the rest of us. And and Abigail's response is, uh, who did all of this? I did. 
That's why I get half of it. You should be lucky you get any of it. Like, I'm being nice by letting you have some. Yeah, and then Paula tries to guilt her. She's like, well, I'm in charge of the safety of the guest until we're rescued. And you are just a toilet manager. And that's when the systems that protected these people when they were on the boat, when they were back home, they kind of realize all that's fallen apart. Because Paula, or sorry, Abigail, showcases the fact that they're not going to make it without her. So they need to start listening to her if they want to have any chance of survival. And they can't deny it. And she's she, completely yeah, right. My favorite is she points. She's like, out there, toilet manager. Here, captain. So she asks everybody, who's the, uh, like, who am I? The cat. She, she gives them a Yeah, portion. every time somebody says, cap, she, when she goes, who am I, captain? They go, she gives them peace. And then she gets to Paula last, which I love that she saved Paula last. And Paula won't say she's the captain, but kind of silently acknowledges it and knows she has to go along at this point because yes. everyone else is going along. Uh, and then eventually, Abigail decides she wants to take advantage of the fact that she's in a leadership position at this point and demands that Carl basically become her sex toy. Uh, and that in exchange for that, she will like treat him a little nicer. He'll get a little extra food. Yeah. And Carl... It just very comically, like, tries to talk to Yaya. I'm like, but this is, you know, this is for the best, honey. But the thing is, like, Carl, it's not as if, like, Abigail started this on a whim. No. no. Kyle, like, Carl is, like, you know. He, he offers himself up. He flirts with <laughs> yeah. her. Yeah. He knows what he's doing. And so at the moment, like, the thing is, like, in the lifeboat, people will go, uh, like, sleep in there. So the first night, it's Yaya. Um, Paula and Abigail. All the women except for uh, Therese. Therese, because she... Well, the very first night they sleep there, they hear a wild animal, and they all abandon Therese and her lifeboat yep. until morning, which was such a cruel, sad scene, <laughs> because this poor woman who can't walk, yeah. she's depending on them. And, I mean, it's sort of... Ostland is showing us that, yeah, this is what happens in civilized society. Disabled people are abandoned. Yeah, and so they all, like sleep in there and then a few nights later she goes well uh, me and Carl are gonna sleep in there and that is when Carl tries to have a conversation with Yaya about it he shows her the extra pretzel sticks he got them yes and she kind of relinquishes she eats it but she's trying to tell it to Carl don't do anything that you would get mad at me for doing by and being in there and that reflects it, back to her just comment or just her looking at the hot crew member and his overreaction to it. And now he's literally like, yeah, I'm going to go fuck this lady. But you're cool with that, right? Yeah. <laughs> and it's sort of, he's trying to argue, well, the circumstances have changed. And it's like, well, okay. But you couldn't figure out another way. Uh, but he wants preferential treatment. It's, the, it's typical of the wealthy. He wants special little boy. Yes. He wants more than everyone else. He's not satisfied having the same. Uh, you get to watch Dimitri have to eat. Uh, shit, <laughs> which is a very satisfying thing oh, to yeah, have. Oh, yeah, because Dimitri, who is the one who's just basically like, oh, with wealth you get money, he starts treating Abigail very nicely. He, like, uses this lamp to light her way back home. He's like, oh, you caught fish? You did. You do such great work. He, yeah, he defers to her completely and, like, praises her. But, like, it doesn't work because Abigail just goes, eh, thank you. Yeah, it's like <laughs> Abigail is in some ways the smartest person because she understands power she understands why she did what she did out there and why she can do what she does here yeah uh 
the I think the island there's a lot of people I've seen online who say they think the island part is the weakest part of the movie. I think that's the strongest. And I part felt of the same them. way. I felt like this is where the threads, all the themes kind of come together and Oslin kind of solidifies and makes his point uh, about what he's saying. And I it's and it's cynical. It's a cynical point because what he's saying is all we do is recreate hierarchies, we just put different people in the places of power. That you never truly have a system where like it's equitable. There's always yeah. going to be someone in charge. And I'm one that I don't necessarily disagree with the idea of having hierarchical power to some extent. It's just the argument of what are the conditions of that hierarchy mm -hmm. and how are the people allowed to influence and shape that hierarchy. Uh, I think if you go with capitalist systems, then the people will have the least amount of power. And this is a, a case where Abigail's not wrong in why she outlines why she deserves more octopus than the rest of them. She has skills that are needed. And I mean, that's, you know, a communist thing is if you have the skills, you should get the money because you're the one doing the work. I think it's also just a sad thing that none of them offer to learn. Yeah. Yes. At no yes. point are they like, hey, Abigail, can you teach me? And like, that would reveal something. Does she genuinely want survival or does she want the power and because they never ask we never really know yeah because there is a point that in the first night when she goes to sleep in the in the boat um they notice that her backpack is out and the pretzels are out yeah, she left a pack of pretzels so carl and nelson like end up doing a small hole and they end up sharing it with, uh, with Therese and they end up eating the whole thing. Yeah, at first they're like, we'll just have to try to pretend that like they didn't do anything wrong. And that's when she basically like doesn't allow them to have food she as a punishment. She excludes um, Nelson and Carl. She allows Teresa to eat, which I thought was interesting. Yeah. But she excludes Carl and Nelson because I from think to the her, meals. she's like, they. They knew better. And also, she acknowledges that Teresa's disabled. That puts her in a different group than the two of these able-bodied men. Yeah, and so, but uh, what happened is, not only did they eat the pretzel, they let the fire die. And yeah, that was even worse. Yeah. And she's like, you don't understand how hard it is to make a fire, and I'm the only one who knows how to do it. So it's more work for her. And yeah. so, but at no point did they go, well, teach, teach us how to make a fire, we'll mm -hmm. keep it in the meantime. None of them offer themselves because they have this belief like, well, just, we're just going to endure her for a little bit longer. And of course, we're going to be safe. Well, people like Carl have just lived their lives so passively and things have just kind of happened to them mm -hmm. and at them that they've never. I mean, I don't get the sense. We don't really get any background information on these characters, which is fine. But yeah, I don't get the sense that he struggled in his upbringing necessarily. Like, Maybe Carl he's middle class. Is just he's as, fine. as manipulative as everyone else. Yeah. Because I love that. But he likes to frame himself as he's virtuous. He's a good person. Well, he like the arguments that he ends up having with oh, with Yaya when that brief moment that like Yaya gets angry because Carl is casually touching Abigail in front of everybody, so her jealousy peaks up. And, and like Yaya has a right to be jealous. He is sexually interacting with someone outside of their relationship so that she's she not consented to. And so she ends up kissing, uh, like, Yorma. Yorma as a payback. And it's just, like, this... All, it's so pathetic, It's, the like, whole thing. all these complications that are going on. And then the men that are, like, trying to find a way to hunt and are, like, Ugh. are just, like... Well, it, they, there's things that are happening that, to me as a viewer, and I won't... We all want to go into detail, that you start to have some questions about the island they're on. Because there's certain things that I was like, huh, uh, that, how did that get there? Uh, and it's, 
Well, it's a lack of observation from everybody. Well, I think ultimately what it is is the wealthy have no sense of the real world. They have no observation skills. They don't pay attention to anything. Once you reach a, a certain level of wealth privilege, you just become passive in your life and things, like I was saying, happen at you. And yeah. you're just like, well, of course someone's going to bring me a drink. Of course I'm going to have food served to me. That's just what happens to me when I yeah, wake up. Yeah, because it's like Dimitri is like, well, they're obviously going to come look for us at some point. Well, like Dimitri is the smartest of the people outside of Abigail and that he defers to her. He's intelligent enough, probably because he's, when you look at his age, he grew up during an incredibly rough period in the Soviet Union where you really kind of saw a dark side of humanity. And so he understands what you have to do to make it when you're in those circumstances, which is kiss her ass. Yeah. He's going to kiss her ass, knowing that if he gets out of here, he's not going to change. He'll have his money again, and then he'll be back to where he was, and none of this will have mattered. Yeah, because he does tell Abigail, like, I will I will give you money. Yeah. I will give you money. She didn't like, care. <laughs> but at this moment, she can't care yeah. because the money is not going to do anything currently. Yeah, and they're We're not in a place where present. she could even spend it. Like, Yeah. Uh, and so that's why I think we'll start stop with the review because the things yeah. that happen after that are very interesting. The ending's very ambiguous. We get a shot, this kind of a jump cut yeah. to a scene with a ton of energy happening into it. And we don't really know what led exactly to that moment yeah. and where this person is going. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, it underlines the movie with this sense of sort of chaos yeah that the world is in chaos and the wealthy have constructed this illusion for themselves that it isn't but we see nature we see the uh, consequences of their actions coming back to literally i guess bite them on the ass in a way when they are having diarrhea all over the place (laughs) that their obliviousness to the world will damn them yeah but ostland is also sort of saying and yeah that's just kind of what's going to happen so I think Osland is a cynic. When you look at his other movies, they are very cynical yeah. movies. I still enjoy them because it's great comedy. And I think we don't get a lot of movies that are willing to say these things and be this bleak. No. While still also being hilarious. Uh, and so would it, you recommend this movie. Oh, yeah. I'll recommend this movie. And I remember when I was watching it, I, I told you, like, people are going to take this and be like, yeah, this is about, like... How women take advantage of us, not really like looking into it in a deeper way. I mean, it's the typical sort of online chud discourse of looking at everything at the surface level. Yeah. Instead of really going deep and figuring out, you know, let's go beyond gender. Let's really look at like what's happening. What are the actual dynamics between the characters? I would recommend it. I'd say it's it's a it's an easier and more easily digested film than Soft and Quiet. It's intense in its own ways, but it uses humor to soften the blow. Soft and Quiet does not use humor to soften the blow. Uh, so of the two movies, I would say, if you're not up for how hard Soft and Quiet's going to go at you, Triangle of Sadness is a good alternative. Yeah, they, but, you know, um, Soft and Quiet is only an hour and a half. This movie two is two hours, hours and 20 minutes. minutes. It's a long one. <laughs> but yeah, uh, Triangle of Sadness, both movies are available on video on demand and are worth your time to watch. That was the Pop Cult Podcast for this week. We hope you enjoyed this episode and make sure to check out the show notes for links uh, to all our various places you can find us and any relevant reviews on the popcult.blog site. 
Uh, speaking of popcult.blog, over there right now, we're in the middle of a very 2000s Christmas where I have subjected myself and Ariana to watching some truly awful Christmas movies from the 2000s. Uh, and they're just, just dreadful garbage. And it is both enjoyable in the way that bad movies can be, but also excruciating to like sit through these. Uh, thankfully, after that, we're going to have a nice palate cleanser at the beginning of December, where we're going to be looking at the films of Italian director Michelangelo Antonioni, who directed most of his work, major work in the 60s and 70s. And then after that, it's going to be the big end-of-the-year stuff coming. Uh, hard to believe that the year has already coming to an end. Uh, if you enjoy what you hear on the podcast, what you read over on popcult.blog, uh, we would ask that you support us. Uh, we have a Patreon where we have rewards and various goals. And we want to thank our current patrons, Becca and Matt, who both donate at the Writer's Room level for $10 a month. Uh, along with other things, the main thing you get at the Writer's Room level is you get to pick a movie every month that I will watch, write it up, review. You can also add your own thoughts if that's something you want to do, but you don't have to. Uh, so to check out that Patreon if you're interested. Uh, and make sure to subscribe to this podcast wherever it is you're listening so that you'll be notified when our new episodes go up. Until next time, keep watching. Keep watching.